All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to check to see if you're awake. No. Well, I tell you what, it's good to be back with you. I hope you got some rest last night. Uh, I'm one of those people that has no problem whatsoever going to sleep. My head hits the pillow. I'm gone. I'm, I've checked out and what have you. But it certainly was enjoyable last night. Appreciate the good comments and, uh, and the good thoughts in response to the things that we presented to you. It's good to know that people are already uh, picking up on it on YouTube and watching. And I had, I had a lot of people private message me on YouTube this morning. And Sean asked me yesterday, I mentioned also yesterday, that uh, as I mentioned, some have asked me to share with you for just briefly, where did Don Preston come from? How did I get to where I am at theologically? So I will share with you just a, you know, thumbnail sketch, very, very brief, of myself and my journey. I, I am a fifth-generation member of the Churches of Christ. That is the amillennial view. My father was a minister. His father before him was an itinerant preacher, literally riding horseback to different small congregations and preaching. And so my roots in the all-millennial world, my roots in the Churches of Christ run very, very deep. Now, I am considered a pariah. I've been blackballed, disfellowshipped, you know, ostracized, what other words you'd like to use, <clears throat> but that's all right. But I've actually debated from the all-millennial view. My very first formal public debate, I was still a con somewhat convinced amillennialist, even though I had begun to see some real severe difficulties in the traditional views. But I was asked to teach a class on the Olivet Discourse by a ladies' Bible class. And the Olivet Discourse is a very troublesome text for any futurist. It is a troublesome text in the entire history of Christianity. It did not take me but an extremely short period of time to realize that the view that I had been taught, that the Olivet Discourse talks about two different subjects, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the so-called end of the world, and that the disciples were really confused or really dumb when they asked their questions. And I discovered that the disciples were not dumb, they were not confused, they well understood that they were asking one question, and their one question had to do with the end of the Old Covenant age that occurred with the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Thank you. That journey led me to a study of the book of Revelation. I was a late-date advocate, even though, as I mentioned last night, I'd really never even studied the doctrine for myself. I'd never studied the doctrine of the dating for myself. But just like the subject of the Olivet Discourse, when I began to study Revelation and the dating thereof, I soon discovered, much to my shock, that what I had been taught really didn't have any evidence behind it. I began to do a systematic study of the time statements of the Bible, because I had arrived at a point of time in which I saw all of the time statements, the coming of the Lord has drawn near. That's a literal rending, for instance, of James chapter 5, verse 8. 
and I was, needless to say, deeply troubled. I tried the old Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, one day is with the Lord a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. In my systematic study of the time statements all throughout the Bible, I discovered that God can tell time. That's why I wrote the little booklet over there entitled, Can God Tell Time? That was, that was a really challenging event. My next study was to define the term day of the Lord. And I was shocked to discover that the Old Testament defined the day of the Lord as any time within history in which Yahweh, the sovereign God of Israel, would use one nation to judge and to destroy another nation. And that judgment was called the day of the Lord. It would, when the Lord would come out of heaven on the clouds with a shout in flaming fire. And if you want some really great chapters to read, just read Isaiah chapter 30 and 31. You'll find that. But be that as it may, here is the background for the New Testament language of the coming of the Lord. And the New Testament writers were all Jews, and they're quoting that, those Old Testament verses about the day of the Lord. And a hermeneutical question hit me, okay, if the Old Testament language of the day of the Lord is consistently metaphoric, non-literal, it never spoke of a literal physical coming of God out of heaven, and the New Testament writers are using that identical language, even citing those Old Testament prophecies, then upon what basis do I justify taking that metaphoric language and making it literal? See the problem? That's a major problem. And so I found myself at a juncture in which I really, really had to make up my mind. Am I going to follow what the Scriptures say, or am I going to hang on to tradition? And look, folks, I, I well understand the power of tradition. I knew and I understood that the tradition in my church, in my fellowship was, if you diverge from the traditional view, we shoot our wounded. We, uh, we don't wrap our arms around them and, and try to recover them, basically. We just shoot them. We disfellowship them. We disbar them. We cut them off, and we're through with them. And we will treat them in some of the most ungodly ways that you can possibly imagine. And I certainly won't go into that. But nonetheless, the legacy that my father left me was, as I shared with Sean yesterday, my father always told me, he said, Don, you always study the Bible for yourself. Read all the commentators you can. Get all the information you can from as many sources as you can. But you make up your own mind. And you take your stand on what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what any university or college professor might say. It doesn't matter what any commentary might say. If it doesn't agree with the book, then you take your stand on the book. Now, I've got to tell you, that's easy to listen to as a young man when there's no controversy swirling around your head and people are not calling you names and vilifying you. But where the rubber meets the road and you have to make up your mind to listen to that echo of your father's advice in your head and in your heart over what's happening to you right then, that can be a tough situation. I appreciate men like Sean who've gone through the same type of thing to be ostracized and vilified, but who nonetheless are willing to take a stand and who say, I really don't care what men say anymore. A good friend of mine said years ago, and I'll close with this, 
And by the way, this friend was also fired, also vilified. But he told me as we were having a conversation one morning, he said, well, you know, Don, there's not a day in my life anymore where I walk out the door theologically, wet my finger and hold it up to see which way the wind's blowing theologically. He said, I don't care anymore. Just don't care. And I said, that's exactly where I am. Okay. That's just a little bit about Don K. Preston. Uh, hope that satisfies those who wanted to know. We are studying the theme of the last days. Are we in the last days? Let me remind you, and those who will be watching, that if we are not in the last days, if we are not in the last days that the Bible talks about, that would be consummated by the day of the Lord, <clears throat> then that means that all futurist eschatologies are false. Period. And it does not matter if you want to call it amillennial, postmillennialism, or premillennialism, they're all false because they all say we are in the last days. And I don't have to tell you about all of the paranoia that's currently going on about September the 29th and about September the 27th and the four blood moons and the Shemitah and all of that kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, Jonathan Kahn the other day, uh, I saw this little YouTube clip. There was a calf born somewhere. You see that? There was a calf born with what looks like the number seven on it. And Jonathan Kahn, who is the author of The Mystery of the Shemitah, says, Ah, oh, see, there it is. That's a sign that we're in the last days and judgment is about to fall. Really? Where is that in the Bible? That must be about the 25th chapter of 3 John. Somewhere along in there. These guys make this stuff up as they go along. So, I shared with you a hermeneutic, and I want to refresh your mind about the, about the hermeneutical principle, principles that will guide us in our study this morning, because what I want to share with you this morning is an exposition on the last days by comparing the book of Hosea, specifically chapter 3, and the book of 1 Peter. All right? My hermeneutical principle, my hermeneutical outline is this. Point number one. All New Testament writers were Jews, or even in the case of Luke, who is generally considered to be a Gentile, there are some scholars who differ with that, but be that as it may, even in the case of Luke, they were writing about Jewish promises found in the Old Testament. I produced a series some time ago, Luke wrote Acts, right? But as I began to study the book of Acts, I, I discovered that contrary to my tradition, the book of Acts is really about the restoration of Israel. So I produced a 52-lesson series of, of MP3 lessons entitled Acts and the Restoration of Israel. It was a life-changing study on my part. I thought that the book of Acts was supposed to be all about teaching people how to become a Christian. Well, it's there, but that's not the point of it. From chapter 1 to chapter 28, the book of Acts, written by a Gentile, is about the restoration of Israel taking place in the body of Christ. That's all I have time for to talk about that. So, all New Testament writers tell us that their eschatological hopes were nothing but the promises made by God to Israel found in the Old Testament. Point number three, the New Testament writers, as well as the Old, tell us 
that the Old Testament writers did not understand either the timing or the nature of the predictions that they were making. Now keep in mind, let's not forget, the Old Testament prophets said that what they were predicting was for the last days. But guess what? They knew they were not living in the last days. They knew that. They even said that on occasion. Pardon me. The question is, or the, the fact is, however, they didn't know when the last days would arrive. They knew what some, they came to know through the book of Malachi that we'll be talking about. They knew through the book of Malachi that the key harbinger of the last days was Elijah. It was the voice, and it was the messenger who would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And again, more on that later. So the New Testament writers and old explicitly said that they did, did, the Old Testament prophets did not understand either the time or the nature of the things that the Old Testament writers were predicting. But the New Testament writers tell us that they, 2,000 years ago, through the Holy Spirit, was reveal, were revealing what the Old Testament prophecies truly meant. Now that's remarkable. They didn't know, but now through the Spirit, the true meaning of those Old Testament prophecies was being revealed. Now keep that principle in mind, because when we get into our comparison between Hosea and 1 Peter, you're going to see that principle at work in a dynamic, powerful way. All right? Next point. The New Testament writers tell us that they, in the first century, were living in the days foretold by those Old Testament prophets, and those they tell us that those prophecies were being fulfilled in Christ and the church, and finally, they tell us that the end, the end of the last days, was very, very near. Now, folks, this is really great stuff. Well, let's begin our examination then in comparison between Hosea and 1 Peter. But I want to share this with you. I really honestly believe, <clears throat> pardon me, I really believe that Hosea serves as the template for Paul's doctrine of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I believe the book of Hosea lies behind Jesus' parables of the wedding between himself and Israel. I believe Hosea serves as the template for the book of Revelation. I believe the book of Hosea underlies so much of the New Testament, that, and we have been so out of touch with this reality. And I, I made a comparative chart some years ago, and it's in one of my books. I've forgotten now which one it was. I believe it's, I believe it's actually my uh, Babylon book adducing 22 parallels between the book of Hosea and the New Testament, specifically 1 Corinthians 15. I was just blown away when I began to see that stuff. So when I say that we're going to look at Hosea chapter 3, I want you to know Hosea chapter 3 is a microcosm of the parallels between the entire book and the rest of the New Testament. Well, to bring us up to chapter 3, let me take a look very quickly at the context. 
chapter 1. Yahweh came to the prophet Hosea, and he said, Go and marry a daughter of whoredoms. The scholars are, undiv are divided about what did that mean. Was she, was she a woman who was part of the uh, idolatrous cultic worship as a prostitute in some of that cultic uh, pagan religion? Or was she a woman who simply became immoral and became a harlot? Key point. In the Old Testament, the word harlot, although it can be used a few times of simply an, a, a, an immoral woman, that's not the normal use of it. In the Old Testament, the word harlot normally, in the majority of cases, refers to a wife who has broken the marriage covenant. You think that's not important? It's hugely important. But to go on, the Lord told Hosea, go and marry a daughter of whoredoms. Three children were born, <coughs> were born to that relationship. The name of that last child, Lo-Ami, meant not my people. Can you imagine the pain and the angst that Hosea felt? As Yahweh revealed to him over this passing of time and the birth of these three children, that his wife had now become, <coughs> pardon me, completely unfaithful to him, and that the child that she was about to bear was not even his child. <coughs> but the point of all of that was that Yahweh was married to Israel. And Israel, his wife, had become unfaithful. And so, as a result of that, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I am not your husband, you are not my wife. And he said, I'm going to put you away. Hosea, just like you're supposed to put Gomer, his wife, away. Divorce her. Write her a bill of divorcement. And so the Lord said, coming down into chapter 3, For the children of Israel shall abide many days with that king or prince. Now this is Yahweh drawing the comparison between just as Gomer has been put away. She was divorced. When she was divorced, she wandered around. She became a prostitute if, if she wasn't already. But she practiced her trade until she was no longer beautiful and attractive to men. She wound up on an auction block and sold for the base price of a slave. How debasing. And Yahweh said to Hosea, guess what? I'm going to divorce Israel. She's going to wonder. Her lovers will get to the point they don't even want her either. So that's, the, that's behind this language of the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. They will repent. Guess what? Just like Gomer would repent and try to come back and to come back to Hosea. Actually, Hosea went looking for her. And if you want to see grace at work, folks, 
you've got to see the story of Hosea. Because you see, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24, if a man put away his wife and she went away and she was unfaithful and whatever, he couldn't remarry her. <coughs> Pardon me. The Lord called that an abomination. But you know what God said in Jeremiah chapter 3? Even though it would be an abomination, the Lord said, I'll accept Judah back. That's grace at work in Yahweh. So God said, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Look, David has been dead for centuries at this point. David their king is a euphemism for the Messiah. They shall fear the Lord and His goodness when? In the last days. Now I want you to take a look. Israel shall be many days without king. In Hosea chapter 13, the Lord said, I gave Israel a king in my anger, and I, t I will take him away in my wrath. But Israel would be without a king until Messiah would come. That's what this is saying. Israel will be without a king and without a prince for a long, long time. Now notice this. <clears throat> without sacrifice or sacred pillar. God was going to take away the altars at Bethel and Dan. And as we saw last night in our study, He was going to <coughs> Pardon me. He was likewise going to destroy even the temple at Jerusalem which of course is not, not what is under consideration here, but he was going to take away the altars of Bethel and Dan and take away the priesthood that the ten northern tribes had established when they apostatized, and they, and they were then uh, taken off into Assyrian captivity. Now what in the world, what in the world did Yahweh mean when He says they're going to be without ephod and without teraphim? How many of you have seen an ephod lately? Have you run over one in the road? I think one ran across the road in front of me the other night. No. The ephod and the teraphim was the means by which the priest under the Old Covenant received revelation from God. If and when he was not speaking through the prophets, and by the way, in Hosea the Lord says, I will still and cause to cease the voice of the prophets. So here is Yahweh saying, I am going to cause the revelatory process in Israel to cease. No more revelation for Israel. And then He says, but the time is coming in which Israel will return to Me. They will repent. But what was He going to do with Israel before they turned? He was going to scatter them. Remember, He's going to divorce them. So in Hosea chapter 8 and verse 8, as he predicts Israel going off into Assyrian captivity, Yahweh said, Israel is swallowed up. Israel is among the Gentiles. Israel was going to be carried off into the Assyrian captivity, out from their normal <coughs> geographical inheritance, carried off into the foreign countries, assimilated into the bloodlines of foreign countries. Yahweh would bring people from other countries, settle them in Samaria. They would intermingle with those who were left behind. Now there's a rapture for you, by the way, folks, but it's not a really good rapture. 
And that being left behind meant that the bloodline of Israel was completely diluted. It was lost, if you want to use that terminology. But those who were taken abroad came to be known as the diaspora, the scattered. Okay, <clears throat> let's see what Yahweh is then predicting. Now remember, He says, they will return to me, and they will serve the Lord in the last days. So look at everything that he is predicting. The coming of Messiah the Prince, the return of the ephod. Now, here's something, as I shared with you ever so briefly last night, here's something very, very, very important for you to know. The Jews understood, it's in lots and lots and lots of rabbinic writings, that the revelatory process, the office of the prophet, perished from the ten northern tribes at the Assyrian captivity. It perished from Judah at the Babel, excuse me, at the writing and the finishing of the book of Malachi. They did not believe that from Malachi onward, for 400 years, they did not believe that there was a divine, authoritative, inspired prophet of God in Israel. They believed, however, that in the last days, God would pour out His Spirit and do what? Raise up prophets once again. And specifically, they believed Elijah would come before the coming of the great and the terrible day of the Lord. So, this concept of the return of the ephod, the return of the revelatory process would mean what? The last days are present. That is a key sign. We'll see that in a moment. Not only did he predict, not only did Hosea say, or Yahweh through that, he said they'll be without, without altar and without sacrifice, okay? The temple, <coughs> pardon me, that means the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifice of the Lord, all of those would be restored in the last days. Now let me remind you again that our dispensational friends say that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between what the Old Testament prophets predicted and the way they were supposed to be fulfilled in the New Testament times or in the last days. So what do they tell us? We're waiting for the, for the rebuilding of the, uh, for the building of the Messianic temple. We are waiting for the restoration of the Levitical priesthood. We are waiting for the restoration of animal sacrifices. Isn't that incredible? When God said in Hebrews chapter 10, 5 and following, in offering, in burnt offering, and sacrifices, I have had no pleasure. And yet it seems that our dispensational friends believe that Yahweh wants not only animal sacrifices, but more animal sacrifices than have ever been offered in history. And yet God all along said, this is not what I want. Those animal sacrifices were typological foreshadowings, as we talked about yesterday, of the ultimate, the perfect, the final, the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And those sacrifices were, were only to endure with any kind of significance until that final sacrifice was made. 
why would God ever reestablish those ineffective, imperfect, animal bloody sacrifices that he never wanted in the first place? Why would he reestablish them when his son offered his, his life as the perfect sacrifice one time for all time? All right, well, let's take a look then. Let's look at 1 Peter. Now, I don't know about you, I was raised being taught that Peter was writing to Gentiles. That's what I was taught in seminary. Because after all, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, having your conversation, having your manner of life honest among the Gentiles, fear God that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Hmm. Well, there you go, see. And Peter said, you are strangers and pilgrims. Well, strangers are obviously Gentiles. Well, he's using the word stranger there in a very unique way. I really shouldn't take the time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do you realize that the word strangers had a very definite meaning to Israel? The word stranger meant you don't get to own dirt in the land of Israel. Do you realize that foreigners, pagans, i.e. Gentiles, could own none of the land of Israel? But who is Peter writing to? Well, I hope you have your Bibles. I hope you will open them if you got your Bible. Let's look and explore the book of 1 Peter in this context. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims, pilgrims, of the dispersion. Well, guess what? He uses the word diaspora, the Greek word, and the diaspora was a technical word in the first century for whom? Well, it had been a, a technical word literally for centuries before the first century. It was a technical word for the ten northern tribes that had been carried away into Assyrian captivity. He is not talking about Gentiles because the Gentiles were not scattered abroad. Where they were is where they lived. Where they were was their, quote, homeland. But he's talking to people that he calls pilgrims. You know why he's doing that? Because Peter has in mind something that I mentioned last night, and it's called the second exodus. He sees Israel in his day experiencing and traveling in the second exodus. Pardon me. In the Old Testament, God had predicted a final second exodus. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 and 11, it shall come to pass when? When will it be? In the last days. I will set my hand again a second time to gather together the remnant of my people who are scattered abroad. I will gather them from Egypt, from Assyria, from Pathros, and from Cush, and from the uttermost parts of the world. And I will bring them to me. Second Exodus. Who's Peter writing to? The pilgrims who are scattered abroad. In the second exodus, that is now taking place. So point number one, Peter is writing to Israel. 
scattered abroad. Josephus tells us, you know, we sometimes talk about uh, the, the, the lost ten tribes, and there was a great deal of assimilation, just as I indicated a little bit ago, with the intermarrying and what, to, uh, what have you. But there was also the fact that there was, there was a, a distinctness about the ten northern tribes that were in ba still in Babylon. Josephus, first century historian, says that the ten northern tribes were, were in Babylon, and he, a matter of fact, he even says their number is greater than can, than can be counted. They weren't really, quote, lost. Josephus knew where they were. But they were in the Roman Empire as well. When Paul went to Antioch of Pisidia, when he went to Macedonia, when he went to Corinth, guess what? He went to the synagogues. Who's in the synagogue? The diaspora. And Paul is calling them, calling them to their Messiah. So it's critical for us to see who Peter's audience is. Who is Peter anyway? Well, guess what? Peter is the apostle to the circumcision. He is the apostle to Israel. He is writing to Israel in 1 Peter. Let me reiterate this. Peter is not writing to Gentile pagans. And this will become evident as we continue. Now, I'm going to begin reading with verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again unto a living hope, hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, undefilable is a really good word there, undefilable, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed when? In the last time. Hang on to that statement. Ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, although now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, he is drawing there from Daniel chapter 12, and he is also drawing from the book of Malachi. I can't go any further. Whom having not seen, speaking of Jesus, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving, that's a present active in the Greek, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now watch this. Of this salvation. What salvation? The salvation to be revealed at the day of the Lord. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace to be brought to you. What did the prophets prophesy? Salvation. They prophesied of grace. And they prophesied it, they predicted it to come at the day of the Lord. Who are these prophets? They're the old covenant prophets. Well, let's go ahead, and I know that because of this. Searching, that's what these prophets did, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did testify, indicating, uh, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow, to whom, to whom who? To the prophets. 
to the prophets who predicted the coming of the Lord, to the prophets who predicted the salvation to come at the day of the Lord, who predicted the coming of the grace at the day of the Lord, to whom it was revealed, now watch this, that not to themselves did they minister those things. Now here's the reason I know he's talking about Old Covenant prophets. Were the Old Covenant prophets supposed to participate in salvation? Well, absolutely. Hebrews chapter 11 spoke about Abraham and Isaac and all of the great men and women of faith who were longing for the better resurrection, who were longing for the new creation, and they had arrived at the time <clears throat> of fulfillment. They stood at Mount Zion, which is the locust, the place of the fulfillment. What did Jesus say? Speaking about Abraham, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. And he was glad. Oh, but wait. Abraham saw that promise, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 and following, far off. See, God can tell time. Abraham knew that this heavenly city and the heavenly country and the better resurrection that he was being promised was not for his day. He saw it far off. But believing in the Lord, he embraced that promise, and he made it his. And Jesus said, Abraham saw it far off, but guess what? He saw my day. And he was glad. So Abraham would participate ultimately in that promise, but when Peter says they were told it was not for them, that meant it was not for their day. Well, let's see. Daniel chapter 12. In the prediction of the great tribulation, in the prediction of the resurrection, in the prediction of the end of the age and the righteous shining forth in the kingdom, Daniel was told, Daniel, seal up the vision of the prophecy of this book, for it is many days to come. It's a long time off. Daniel, you will sleep with your fathers until the time of the end in which you will arise to your inheritance, Daniel 12, 13. So here is Daniel being explicitly told concerning the vision of the great tribulation and the resurrection, etc., etc. It was not for his day. It didn't mean it was not for him because verse 13 tells us. The promise is for you, Daniel, but not now. It's a long time off. So that's why Peter tells it and expresses it like he does when he says those prophets were informed it was not for them, not for them temporally. It was not for their day. Knowing it was not for their day, they sought to know the time and the manner of those things. But notice what Peter then says. Now remember, what did Hosea say? In the last days, I will restore the ephod. What's the ephod? The revelatory process. It was that breastplate that the high priest wore. And look, the scholars don't have a clue as to exactly how God communicated through that breastplate. It was, you know, it had 12 stones in it. Each stone was a different color. There is some speculation that the stones would light up in a certain sequence you know, glow, and that was supposed to communicate the will of God. I don't have a clue, all right? I really don't know. If you do, maybe you can enlighten me, and that would be great. 
But I've never read a scholar, I've never read any Jewish writings that gave any insight whatsoever as to exactly precisely how God communicated. But the fact is, that is how God revealed His will to the priest who then communicated it to the people. Remember, Yahweh said, Israel will be many days without the ephod, without revelation from God. But in the last days, guess what? I'm going to restore the ephod. Does that mean he was going to restore the literal physical ephod? See, we're back to the hermeneutic, aren't we? We're back to, is it a literal ephod that was to be rebuilt, restored? Or is it just the revelatory process? Well, here's Peter who says in verse 20 that Christ had been manifested, had been revealed, quote, in these last times. Whoa. When did Hosea say the ephod would be restored? In the last days. When did Peter say Jesus was revealed? When did Peter say he was living? In the last times. And what does Peter say was going on through him and the other apostles? Well, watch this. Verse 11 again. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and, his, and the glories that would follow. By the way, do you realize that Daniel chapter 9 testified of the suffering of Christ and the glory that would follow? He's echoing Daniel chapter 9, 24 and 27 right here. Well, guess when Daniel 9, 24 to 27 would be fulfilled? At the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, verse 27, Daniel 9, 27. The full end of the 70 weeks will be at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's incredible. Okay. To them it was revealed that not unto, this, uh, unto themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now, that's Peter's now. You and I are the recipients of the divine revelation that was given to Peter. You and I are not inspired. You and I are not authoritatively and infi infallibly inspired by the Holy Spirit. On one of my uh, YouTube videos the other day, I said one of the reasons that I know that Jonathan Kahn is not right is because he's not a prophet. In the Bible, a prophet was inspired from God. He was infallible. And he was totally authoritative. Now, folks, if you know a prophet like that, I wish you'd let me know. I'd really like to meet him. And I had people responding to that post saying, oh, yeah, we've got prophets today. It's just like they're, they're not prophets like that. I'm going, well, then they're not a prophet. They're not a biblically defined prophet. Now, if you want to just use a term for a man who is a preacher and call him a prophet, that's your business. But don't say he is a biblical prophet. Let's use our terms and let's use them accurately. I would prefer to do that at least. I've had people call me a prophet and I go, mm -mm 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 -mm. no, please don't do that. I'm trying to be a preacher. I'm trying to be a teacher. Lord willing, give me enough time, I might wind up being one. But I'm not a prophet of God as biblically defined. So here is Peter saying, do you remember Hosea who said, Israel is going to be without the ephod. He's going to be without the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm telling you, 
Hosea said. That Holy Spirit of revelation, that Holy Spirit of authority, that Holy Spirit of infallible doctrine will be restored in the last days. And Peter said, we're living in the last days and the Holy Spirit is revealing the true meaning of Hosea to us. You say, well, how do you know he's talking about Hosea, Don? Well, just hang on. Just hang on. Let's go on. Let me finish on verse 12. Which have now been reported to us through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into you. Do you remember Matthew 13, 17 that I quoted yesterday? Jesus said to His apostles, Verily I say unto you, many prophets and wise men have desired to see what you hear, to, <clears throat> to see what you see, and to hear what you hear, and have not seen, and they have not heard. These are the things that the angels desire to look into. Who is he preaching to? Who is he speaking to? Well, Peter was one of them in Matthew 13. So Jesus is saying what the prophets looked forward to but did not understand. Jesus said to his apostles, it's being given to you to see, to know, and to experience. That is exactly what Peter is reiterating here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, when he says the Old Testament prophets didn't get to see it. They longed to look into it. The angels longed to look into it, but they, they did not understand, but we do, because God has given us the Holy Spirit, because God has restored the ephod. Let me put this another way. Israel was being restored. Because you see, as the question was asked about Ezekiel th chapter 37 yesterday, what did God do? What did God say He would do? Here is Israel dead in their sin, alienated from God, in their, quote, graves, metaphorical graves, not literal, literal dirt. God said, I'll put my spirit, I'll pour my spirit out upon you, and I will raise you up out of your graves. Here is Peter, and he's saying God had poured out His spirit. And get, by the way, he says they had been begotten again to a living hope. See, they were being made alive through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the process of the new birth of Israel. Okay, so here we find Peter addressing the same audience, the same people as, as the book of Hosea. Number two, he is writing about the restoration of the ephod, the revelatory process. Now look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2. How much time do I have? Oh, excellent, excellent. 1 Peter chapter 2, we will begin reading with verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisy, evil, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, coming to Him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You remember yesterday I spoke to you about the motif that is found in the New Testament, as well as the old, about the rejected cornerstone. In Isaiah chapter 8, the Lord spoke of a stone, a stone that would be set in Jerusalem and in Zion, and Yahweh said, this shall be a stone of stumbling and a cause of offense for many in Israel. But it shall be also for the salvation. You remember when Jesus was taken into the temple by His parents? 
You remember what Simeon did? I think it was Simeon, or was it Anna? Anyway, took the baby Jesus, lifted them up, and said, Lord, now I have seen your salvation. And this child is set for the rise and for the fall of many in Israel. Guess what he's doing? What they're doing? They're alluding directly to Isaiah chapter 8, the rejected cornerstone. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, the Lord predicted the coming and the establishment of the kingdom, which is described as a stone cut out without hands. And in the days of the Roman Empire, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and it shall crush and destroy all of the other kingdoms. You see, this stone, this rejected cornerstone, was not only going to be for salvation, it would crush and destroy those who rejected it. Remember Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, a precious stone, a precious cornerstone, foundation stone. And it shall come to pass that whoever believes shall not, be, shall not make haste, and that stone would be the stone that the builders rejected, and it would become the chief cornerstone. Do you remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 4, 10 and following? Speaking to the Jews of his day, the chief cornerstone which you, the builders, have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now go with me. Keep your place here in 1 Peter because we're coming right back. But I just wanted to give you some really critical background on the fact of this rejected cornerstone. But go to Matthew chapter 21 with me. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 21. And by the way, I, I discussed this in far greater detail in my book, The Elements Shall Melt with Fervent Heat. You remember the story how, uh, of the parable of the vineyard? The wicked husbandman who killed the servant sent to them, they finally killed the son. For time consideration, let's go down to verse, verse 40. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those wicked men? Now, Jesus is talking to the Jews gathered around him. By the way, the vineyard is Israel, according to Isaiah chapter 5. We didn't have time to get into that last night. Okay? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Isaiah chapter 8. Now look what Peter's doing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is going to tie together all, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter alludes to, cites, or quotes, almost, not everyone, but almost every single one of the old covenant promises concerning the rejected cornerstone. Now, what is that rejected cornerstone for? The Messianic temple. What did God say in Hosea? Israel's going to be many days without a temple, without an altar, and without a sacrifice. But in the last days, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to build the Messianic temple. How's He going to do it? Well, it's going to be built on the rejected cornerstone. That's how He's going to do it. So look at this. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 again, coming to him as a living stone, living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Now, if you're a good Jew and you're hearing this, or you're reading this, this is really what you call a good news, bad news type of deal, isn't it? Because the good news is you're living in the last days. You're living in the days of the Messianic temple. The bad news is, if you reject that chief cornerstone, what did Isaiah say, 8 say would happen? That stone will crush and destroy everyone who rejects it. Wow. Wow. All right, let's go on. You also. Now watch what they have done. They, the diaspora, who have now come to Jesus as Messiah, who is, who, who is this Jesus Messiah? He is David of Hosea chapter 3. They shall serve David their prince. Now you have come to Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. And in doing so, notice what he says, you therefore as living stones. Okay, the, the chief cornerstone is what? Jesus. But he's not a literal stone, is he? He is the living Savior. Who are these people? They're living stones. Living stones of what? The Messianic temple. How is Peter, through the Holy Spirit, interpreting the prophecy of Hosea that in the last days there would be a messianic temple. He is interpreting it. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and these living people are being built. They are the living stones to build the messianic temple. It is not a literal, physical edifice. Now, therefore, you also as living stones are being, that's a present active indicative in the Greek, which meant they were in the process when Peter wrote of constructing the Messianic temple. A holy priesthood. Now notice he doesn't say, now some of you folks are Levites, so you're going to be chosen to serve in this literal Messianic temple. No, <clears throat> He's writing to the diaspora, and he says, you are a priesthood. Wow. This is revolutionary. Do you know why it's revolutionary? It is because in Isaiah chapter 60, the Lord predicted that in the last days, that in the days of the Messiah, He gives an entire list of countries, pagan Gentile countries. And He said, those from those countries will come, and they these Gentile pagans, shall ascend the altar, my altar, and offer there acceptable sacrifices. Folks, if you don't think that's revolutionary, if you don't think that's stunning, then you've missed the point. Here is Isaiah predicting the time in which pagan Gentiles, but who have now come to serve the true God, could be offering not, they're not Levites, they're not Zadokites, they're Gentiles. But they can offer acceptable sacrifice on the altar of God. 
But it's not a literal physical altar at Jerusalem because any pagan that would even attempt to go into the temple at Jerusalem and offer a physical sacrifice, guess what? Off with their head. No, no, no. This is a radical redefinition of Israel's temple. It's the Messianic temple, and it is a living temple based upon, built upon the living foundation of Jesus Christ and living people. Peter is predicting, just like Hosea said, Israel will be without priesthood for many days until the last days, and then they'll have a priesthood. And Peter's writing to the diaspora saying, you have become the priesthood of God. Hebrews chapter 13, this is more than remarkable. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer who is writing to Christians, they are Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians, and he said, by Him, by Jesus Christ, let us, an all-inclusive term, by Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise unto God that is the fruit of our lips. Now, here's the key thing. The sacrifice of praise was an Old Testament sacrifice offered only by Levites. Okay? But the writer of Hebrews is saying to his entire audience, we can all offer the sacrifice of praise now. See, the priesthood has been totally radically rechanged, redefined, and expanded to any believer in Jesus Christ. Just like John said in Revelation chapter 1, 5 and following, He, that is God, has made us to be a kingdom of priests, or He has made us to be kings and priests. This is incredible stuff. And it's it, applying our hermeneutic. Here is Peter, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying, Hosea's prophecy of the restoration of the priesthood is now being fulfilled, but it doesn't, it, it's no longer limited to limited to the Levites, it is now inclusive of anyone who wants to become a follower of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Let's go on very, very quickly. What, was the sac what were the sacrifices under Torah? Well, you have bulls, you have goats, you have lambs, you have doves, you have oil, you have spices. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise unto God. That is the fruit of our lips. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, holy, acceptable unto God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, or yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2, excuse me, notice what he says, you are a holy priesthood to offer up what kind of sacrifices? Now you need to go to Jerusalem. Make sure you got plenty of bulls, plenty of goats, plenty of lambs. Make sure if you don't have any of that, make sure you got plenty of doves. No. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. Look, folks, it's a spiritual temple built on, with spiritual stones. It is a spiritual priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. This is how Peter is interpreting Hosea. Now let's go on very, very quickly. And what's my time now? Two minutes. Oh, okay. 
Therefore it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and the one who believes in Him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe He is precious, to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the Word in which they were, to which they were also appointed. Now watch this. But you <coughs> are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but who have now obtained mercy. Do you know what he's doing? He is quoting verbatim from Hosea chapter 1, 9 and 10. See, Peter has Hosea very firmly in his heart and in his mind as he writes about what's taking place with the diaspora who have been converted to Jesus Christ. You are the priesthood that Hosea foretold. You are the temple that Hosea foretold. You are serving David the king that was foretold. You are living in the very days foretold by Hosea. And I'm saying this, Peter said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because the ephod has been restored. The prophetic office has been restored. Finally, Peter said, not only that they were living in the last days, but notice what he said. <clears throat> that salvation for the last days, to be revealed at the day of the Lord, was ready. From the Greek word hetoimos, which means about to be revealed. He said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 5 that Christ was ready to judge the living and the dead. Once again, the Greek word hitoimos means temporally ready, temporally on the point of judging the living and the dead. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, Peter said, The end of all things has drawn near. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, this right. Now remember, when's everything to be consummated? Day of the Lord, at the end of the last days. And Peter said, The time, literally the appointed time, for the judgment has arrived. When we apply our hermeneutical pattern and our hermeneutical principles, as Peter incorporates and comments on Hosea, he tells us he was living in the days foretold. He tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's giving us the true meaning. And he tells us that the true meaning of Hosea's prophecy, he just goes down the list. He goes down the list. King David, altar and temple, ephod, priesthood. Everything was about to be consummated and fulfilled. The end had come. I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brother Don. Uh, we have been greatly fed. I've learned so much, and uh, we will continue to be for this last of the, the fourth part coming up next after a six-minute break. Give Don some time to rest. Us to do what you want. You guys at home can uh, take advantage of what Seth's going to give you right now. Be back in six minutes. We're good. Really great. Green pastries, Guyman. Waiting for you.
It's great to hear such great visitation and fellowship going on. Uh, I, I just always absolutely love that. This is lesson number four in the series on the theme of the last days. I begin by sharing with you the idea that if we are not in the last days, then all futurist eschatologies are completely false. I do not have to tell you, I am sure, that we are constantly being inundated by the latest and greatest claims. Oh, well, a brand new sign. It's a sign of the times. I mentioned in the, in the previous lesson how Jonathan Kahn called attention to a, a calf that's recently been born in Israel, and it looks like the number seven. It's a, you know, it's a red calf, and it has what looks like a number seven on it, and he is heralding that as a proof positive of a sign that we are in the last days. Well, as, as I jokingly said, I'd like to know where the verse for that is. I, I've, I've tried to study the concept of the last days, and I've tried to study the concept of the signs of the end a good bit. In fact, some years ago I wrote a book, uh, Signs, Signs, Everywhere a Sign. And I elucidated in that book about what the Bible has to say about signs. I'm going to share some of that with you today. I'm not going to be able to get into everything. But the point of fact is, what we see so commonly in our day and in our time is these so-called prophets pointing to events that the Bible never anywhere identifies as a sign of the end. They literally manufacture these so-called signs of the end. And furthermore, when those signs turn out to not to be signs of the end, they conveniently omit them from their newest book and come up with the new signs. Tim LaHaye is a classic example of this. 
1972, 1973, Tim LaHaye came out with a book predicting the imminent end of the age, and he gave a list of signs. Then later, he and Thomas Ice wrote a book entitled Charting the End Times, and he gave a totally different list. Now, there were some commonalities there, but he gave a different list, and he conveniently omitted any reference to the book that he had written in 1973 and how it had been falsified. How many times have we seen Hal Lindsey talk about the signs of the end? How many of you remember when the Berlin Wall fell? Yeah, an amazing event, incredibly wonderful. Well, I have listened to Hal Lindsey a good bit in my day, kept up with his writings. I'll never forget sitting in my chair watching Hal Lindsey when he said that the fall of the Russian Empire is exactly what he had been predicting all along. I jumped up out of my chair. I started to take my boot off and throw it at the TV. But I literally pointed at the TV and said, you are a lying dog. I want to tell you, I don't use that kind of language very often. <laughs> but I can document, I did document in the, uh, the following week in a, in a lesson that I gave at, at services. He had never, ever said any such thing. Never. And a man got on national TV and told a bald-faced lie saying that he had always been predicting the collapse of the Russian Empire. No, he hadn't. If you are familiar at all with his writings, you know he said he wrote a book, 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. He predicted the rapture in 1988. Didn't happen. Edgar Wisenot. 88 reasons why the rapture must be in 1988. Oops, recalculation. 89 reasons, next book, why the rapture must be in 1989. We all know about Harold Camping, at least I assume we do, and his many, many, many false predictions, all based upon what? the signs of the end. We're in the last days. The signs are everywhere around us. John Hagee is the latest sensationalist, along with Jonathan Kahn. Last year, John Hagee began his proclamations about the four blood moons, and I've watched those videos carefully. And no later, he tells us, then September 27, 2015, there will be a series of world-shattering events. You know, we've already had three blood, three blood moons, and nothing earth-shattering, world-shattering has happened. Oh, I got to tell you, in my YouTube videos, when I've exposed some of the error of John Hagee, I've had people come on and say, oh, yes, it did. There were some earth-shattering events. And I'd respond, okay, what were they? And they would share with me some obscure event in some obscure country, and I'm going, who knew of it? I mean, this is ridiculous. Scholars have a term for this, and it's called cognitive dissonance. 
Cognitive dissonance is a great big fancy term that says when a belief or a prediction has been proven absolutely false, people keep believing in that false belief anyway. And there are an awful lot of people who are followers of John Hagee, who are now followers of Jonathan Kahn. Jonathan Kahn tells us that by the 29th of September 2015, I see this is the 13th, is that correct? Folks, we've only got 16, 16 days left. You might ought to be running to the hills, hiding in the caves, crying to the rocks, and to the caves, fall, oh, wait a minute, we talked about that last night. Never mind. Look, it's constant. It is every generation, and it's multiple teachers in every generation. In the days of the first Iraqi war, a, a, a so-called prophet by the name of Kirban, I have the books in my library, said, I predict. And he made several predictions that that first Iraqi war was in fact proof positive. It was a sign of the end, because everybody knows Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. Everybody knew that. Oops. I really believe it is time to take a good, serious, more calm, non-sensational look at the signs of the end. Now, I know, and I was raised in an environment that said, well, there were signs of the fall of Jerusalem and the end of the Old Covenant age in AD 70. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 and following, Jesus began to talk about His, quote, final coming, unquote, and He said, there are no signs of that event. Well, He said, no such thing. There is no division in Matthew chapter 24. It is not two subjects. It is one subject. I want you to notice, as we begin to look at the charts, that the Bible is clear about what was and what was not to be true signs of the last days and the nearness of the coming of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice, as Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that prediction immediately elicited on the part of the disciples some questions. Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming? Literally, the Greek word is parousia, literally presence. It's not a verb. It's presence. Your coming and the end of the age. Jesus began to explain to them, take heed that no man deceive you. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be earthquake. There's going to be pestilence in all sorts of places. And then you know what Jesus said? In Luke chapter 21, the parallel passage, He said, the end is not immediately. How many times have we seen people point to war, as I just pointed out, to wars and rumors of wars in various places in the world, said, oh, see, see, that's a sign of the end. And Jesus said, no, it's not. No, it's not. And yet people completely ignore what Jesus said about what is not a sign of the end. And they make those non-signs to be signs of the end. People are not being very careful Bible students in this regard. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus, in answering the question, said, here are some things that are not signs 
of the imminent end. Notice, however, in Matthew 24 and verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, then comes the end. Contextually, ladies and gentlemen, what, what end is that? What's the sign of the end, of the age? Well, the gospel be preached into all the world, then comes the end. What do commentators do? They say, well, you know, the disciples weren't asking about that end of Matthew 24, 14. They were asking about a different end. Really? Where do you get two ends? You insert it into the text without justification. That's how you get it in there. That's called eisegesis. It's not exegesis. Eisegesis is the big fancy word that says you read into the text what is not there. Exegesis is you draw out of the text only what is there. Now, notice in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 32, after speaking about the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let those who read understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee. Why? Because the abomination of desolation was a sign of what? The impending destruction of Jerusalem. The abomination was a sign of the end. For then shall be great tribulation such as has never been since the beginning of creation, nor ever yet shall be. Now notice verse 32. When you see all of these things, what have they asked about? Sign of His coming. His coming is verse 29 and 31. When you see these things, when you see the signs that you've asked me about, then know that it, His parousia, it is nigh even at the door. So, the disciples ask about the sign of the end of the age. Jesus gave the sign and said, when you see the signs, know that it, my coming, is near. Again, not two different comings. So, I want to say to you that every major sign, every major sign, and not, not to mention the minor signs of earthquake, famine, pestilence, that the Bible predicted to occur prior to the coming of the Lord. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Every one of the biblical signs of the coming great and terrible day of the Lord appeared in the first century prior to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. I'm obviously not going to deal with the signs that Jesus said were not signs. I'm going to deal only with those signs that are found in both the Old Testament and the New that are specifically stated to be signs of the end. And I don't have time to look at all six of them. There's six major signs that Jesus Himself or the Old Testament and other parts of the New, for instance in Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I do not have time to develop all six of those. I'm going to focus on a couple of them initially, and then I'm going to spend the remainder of my time talking about what I consider to be the greatest of the signs. It is a sign that is greatly ignored. Well, I should say this. A lot of commentaries mention it. They talk about it. 
and they completely overlook the incredible significance of it. But I hope to share with that, or that incredible significance with you here this morning. So let's take a look. One of the great signs of the great and terrible day of the Lord is given to us in Joel. In Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32, the Lord says, It shall come to pass in the last days, or as some renderings say, it shall come to pass afterwards. But it's the last days prophecy according to Peter in Acts chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall dream dreams. Your old men shall see visions. I will show signs in the earth beneath and in the heaven above. The sun shall be dark and the moon shall not give its light before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Now this is a verse that John Hagee says applies to us today. This, you know, the, the sun being turned to blood, that's a blood moon. That's September 27th, 2015, we are told. You know what's interesting to me about that text? Well, what's interesting to me about the text, I want, I want you to turn your Bible to Acts chapter 2. I want us to pay particular attention to everything the text actually says. All right? Um, I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood. Well, you could say, okay, that's a blood moon. But the question of it is, is that the blood moon that Hagee is talking about? And by the way, I don't remember John Hagee talking about the sun being turned to darkness. I don't remember John Hagee talking about blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Where's that supposed to appear? You see, this is all part and parcel of the last day's sign before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. But what does John Hagee do? He focuses on one little bitty narrow statement, the moon shall be turned into blood. He assumes that it is talking about the phenomenon of the blood moon of April 27th. It seems to me that the only exercise that John Hagee ever gets is jumping to conclusions. And he does a lot of that without providing in any contextual justification whatsoever. Now, I want you to notice, here is Joel saying, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, etc., etc. Remember what I've shared with you that Israel understood that the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel with Malachi, pardon me, and would not be restored until the last days. But as we shall see, they believed that in the last days, Elijah, the prophet would come, the prophetic office would be restored, but the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, obviously in miraculous measure, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall dream dreams, your old men shall see visions. They understood these were last days phenomenon. Okay. Day of Pentecost. Now, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered together with one accord in one place. 
And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as fire. And it set upon them, and they each began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Wow. Now, I guarantee you that audience had never seen anything like that. They had never witnessed anything closely precedental to that. You know what the natural response to a lot of people is? You see kind of a, a strange, aberrant type of thing? What's he taking? What are they on? What drug have they taken? And obviously that audience said, well, these men are drunk. Peter, standing up with the eleven, said, Men of Israel, hear my words. These men are not drunken, which, uh, as you suppose, sing is but the third hour of the day. And then this incredible statement. This incredible, in inspired, authoritative, final, definitive statement. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, wait a minute. The Spirit was to be poured out in the last days before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Peter said, this is what Joel said. This is the fulfillment of Joel. Folks, what did that mean? Well, if the Spirit's supposed to be poured out in the last days before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and Peter said this is, this is the fulfillment of Joel, then that meant that the day of the Lord is not very far off. That's what that meant. You know why? Look at Acts 2, verse 40. The men on that day who heard Peter preach about Jesus, crucified, buried, and resurrected, they cried out and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's just a reiteration that they're in the last days, folks. And with many other words did he testify, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Wait a minute. Outpouring of the Holy Spirit before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Peter says, folks, I'm telling you, this is what Joel predicted. You better get your act together and save yourself from this generation and the events of this generation. Well, what are the events of this generation that are linked to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? The great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, I want you to see something. As we've already pointed out, the Holy Spirit had been absent for over 400 years. Daniel foretold, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, foretold that the prophetic office would not only be restored, but it would, it would cease. Seventy weeks are determined to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, my little book over there entitled Seal Up Vision and Prophecy, I document from the scholarly sources, and I'm talking about people across the entire spectrum of eschatology, but, but the Hebrew linguists who tell us that the term seal up vision and prophecy, or the phrase, meant to bring the prophetic office to a close through the fulfillment of all prophecy. Now, mind you that Daniel is writing down near the close of the Old Covenant prophetic function. He's not far from Malachi. 
but he's already predicting the last days and the fulfillment of all prophecy and the cessation of the prophetic office. When would that prophetic office cease to function? At the end of the 70 weeks. What is the end of the 70 weeks? A.D. 70. You know what that means? From the appearance of John, that we'll talk about more, more here momentarily, from the appearance of John until A.D. 70, approximately 40 years, the prophetic office would be restored. And notice what Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2 says. After stating in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse, uh, verse 10, the Lord said, In that day, what day? The day in which they, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn as for an only begotten son. In that day, the Lord said, I will open a fountain for the cleansing of Israel. And in that day, I will cause the evil spirit and the prophet to perish out of the land. See, he is agreeing with Daniel. He is agreeing with Daniel that at the time of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, by the way, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, it would be the time when two-thirds of the people would perish out of the land. Only a remnant would be saved. Dan uh, excuse me, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 to 5, identifies it as the Lord's coming and judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70. There's the cessation of the prophetic office. So when Peter stands up and says... The Holy Spirit's to be poured out before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Save yourselves from this generation. He's pointing to the great and terrible day of the Lord that was coming in that generation. Well, let's go on very, very quickly. I've already spent an awful lot of time on that. I've got a place where I want to be. All right? Notice, once again, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, what should be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all of the world as a witness to the nations. Then comes the end. I cannot tell you how many times as listening and watching TV and listening to the so-called prophets, they say, see, we're closer today to preaching the gospel into all the world than we've ever been in the history of the world. It's never been done. I was having a conversation with one fellow. He was, he was a premillennial dispensationalist. And he said, Don, I want to tell you right now, we're closer today than we've ever been. He said, we're preaching in places that have never been preached to in the history of the world. And the Lord's coming is very, very near. He said, now I know what you believe and I don't want to hear it. Oh, well, thank you very much. I want, to, I want you to ask yourself this question. This may seem like a digression, but it's not. When Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, notice that he, that he said this gospel of the kingdom. What does the word gospel mean? Good news, right? Have you ever wondered how Jesus could refer to the impending destruction of Jerusalem and the cataclysmic destruction to what was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Jerusalem temple, how in the world could that be considered good news? If you're a Jew who loves Jerusalem, and you love the Lord, and you love the temple, you know, the, the, the Jewish rabbis used to say, he who has never seen the temple in its glory has never seen a beautiful thing. I've often said, if I had a time machine, you remember Calvin and Hobbes? 
Any of you remember Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon? Man, I love that. And Calvin, you know, he'd climb in his little box with his little Hobbes uh, tiger toy, and he would transmogrify. And supposedly it's time travel. And take himself to this time and to that time. I wish I could trans, uh, transmogrify. I would love to see the Jerusalem temple in its glory. Now, I wouldn't want to go around 66 AD, mind you. I'd really like to go somewhere around 45, 50 AD. Even that would be treacherous, but it's not as bad as 66 and following. What an incredible, incredible edifice it must have been. It was the pride, literally, of Israel. Ezekiel even called the Solomonic temple the center of the world. That's the way they viewed it. So how in the world could Jesus say, folks, the time is coming in which not one stone will be left standing here on top of another. And by the way, I want you to go tell everybody this good news. Good news? Thousands are going to die. That's right. But that's not the good news. But you see, biblically, theologically, and prophetically, the end of the old covenant world was the full bloom of the new covenant world. It was the end of the world of Torah that could not give life, could not give righteousness, <clears throat> and it was the full glory, the full arrival of the new covenant world of Jesus the Messiah that gives everlasting life. It was the birth pangs of Messiah, as the rabbis used to call it, and as the Bible calls it also. You know, thankfully I'm not a woman. No offense, ladies. But when I saw what my wife went through to give birth to our firstborn, and our second was adopted, I just couldn't grasp that. She was in labor for way too long. Now, I've, I've had 13 kidney stones, and the doctor tells me that's as close as a man ever comes to knowing what it's like for a woman to give birth. And when I, when I had my very first kidney stone, and the doctor told me that, I said, well, I ain't having no more kids, and I want to tell you that right now. I've, I'm through. And 13, you know, 12-year kids later, well, I'm still going. But the birth pangs of Messiah were, was the Jewish concept, the rabbinic concept, that immediately before the resurrection, immediately before the kingdom of God, immediately before the coming of the Lord, the great tribulation would take place. And by the way, that's what Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says. But it would be through that great tribulation that Israel and the righteous remnant would be purified, and they would join with the Gentiles entering into the kingdom of God, entering into resurrection life, eternal life. Would it be traumatic? Absolutely. But would it be good news? It most assuredly would be. So I want you to think about that as you, as you look at Matthew chapter 24. Now, I'm not going to develop this anymore except to point out a couple of verses, all right? And I want to, I'll just simply make this observation. Every single word that Jesus used to predict the, come, the preaching of the gospel into all of the world, he used the Greek word cosmos. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. That's the Greek word oikumene. 
pardon me, which means the inhabited world, that was his inhabited world. As a witness to the nations, ethnoi, it shall be preached into all of the earth, Acts chapter 1. So again, the point of it is, every single Greek word that Jesus used to either predict or to command the preaching of the gospel into all of the world, to all of the nations, to all creation. Paul, writing some years later, said something like this, Romans 16, 25 and 26, that the gospel had been revealed and preached to all the nations. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, the gospel had been preached to every creature, Greek word katissus, under heaven. Now, was Paul lying? I'm pretty sure the gospel wasn't preached in South America, in spite of what some people say. It wasn't preached in Russia. It was preached in the entire inhabited world under the control and the sway of the Romans. That was Paul's world. And that's all that was necessary because that's where the Jews were scattered to, and the gospel had to be preached, what? To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So the point again is that every single word that Jesus used either to predict or to command the preaching of the gospel into all of the world, to every creature, to every nation, Paul uses those same identical Greek words to say, it has been done. Now again, was Paul a liar? Was he wrong? Was he deceived? Where did he get his gospel from? From Jesus Christ. Did he not know what Jesus meant? If he, if he was using those words in a totally radically different way, why did he not tell us? But he didn't. So the point being, Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. Then comes the end, because the disciples asked, give us a sign of the end of the age. And Jesus said, this is a sign. And it happened in that generation. Just like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days happened in that generation, and Peter said, save yourselves from this generation. Okay, let's get to where I really want to be. Somewhere around 1976, by the way, how much time? Oh. Somewhere around 1976, my wife and I, with our new baby, and my mother went to Memphis, Tennessee, and we attended a lectureship there. And one of the speakers by the name of Roy Deaver got up, and he was supposed to be preaching on something entirely different, but he mentioned John the Baptizer, and he said, I want to tell you something. Somebody really ought to write a book on John the Baptizer. And I, I had already become enamored with the study of John the Baptizer, not nearly as much as I am now. But he proceeded to give an outline, an extended outline. He was obviously telling everyone, I'm working on this book. But you know what struck me about what Mr. Deaver said? As he continued to say, John is important. John the baptizer is important. We need to, we need to pay attention to the role of John the baptizer. Do you know what struck me as absolutely anomalous and incredible about his, about his entire presentation? He did not mention eschatology one single time. Not once. And in, in the ensuing years, I have come, as a result of my studies, to the conclusion, I want you to listen to me very carefully, 
that John the baptizer, other than Jesus and Paul, John the baptizer is the most important eschatological figure in the entirety of the New Testament. We see and we hear echoes of John's ministry and message throughout nearly all of Paul's epistles. We hear his message in Revelation. Everywhere we turn, if we are attuned to the message of John, we see his imprimatur and we see his message everywhere. And I clearly do not have time to begin to develop at least in any kind of detail how pervasive John's message is in the New Testament. But I want to share with you in the time remaining that John is identified as, number one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Number two, he is the messenger sent to prepare for the coming of the Lord to his temple, the messianic temple. And number three, he is Elijah who would come before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Now, I could spend a whole lot more than the rest of my time in this presentation just right here in Isaiah chapter 40. You know, we are told that John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, back straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Prepare the way of the Lord. And we're told that John was preparing for the incarnate Jesus. We are told that he was preparing for Jesus' personal ministry. I want to challenge that concept right here and right now. Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort ye, comfort my people, says the Lord, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. By the way, that terminology, her iniquity is pardoned, will serve as the basis for Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined to take away her sin to take away sin. And that's limited to the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay, let me go on. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked places shall be made straight and rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I'm going to skip down for time considerations, verse 9 and following. O Zion, you who bring good tidings. Get up on the high, high mountains, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord your God. Or the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the, the lambs with his arm, carry them them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. I want to make a couple of really, really, really quick observations. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every mountain shall be brought low, every valley shall be, uh, <laughs> shall be filled up. I can't help but comment on Grant Jeffrey. Some years ago he wrote a book, 
And he said, the Bible has to be taken literally. And he said, there's not one Old Testament prophecy that was not fulfilled literally to the letter. None of them are spiritually fulfilled. I go, wow, that's amazing. In Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. As it is written, I send my messenger. And he says, that's John. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did John the baptizer fill up any valleys? Was John the baptizer a literal physical landscaper? Did he build any literal physical highways? No, he didn't. And there's something else about this language that unless we are attuned to the Hebraic way of thinking and the ancient culture predating John for literally centuries, but certainly dominant in his time, this language of preparing a highway for the coming of the Lord, this language of filling up the, up the valleys and, uh, and lowering the mountains is the language of warfare. It is an invading king who is coming to judge and to destroy. Matter of fact, Josephus, who was in charge of the Jewish armies in Judea, at least part of them, shut himself up and his forces up in a city, and he describes how the, at the coming of Vespasian. Who's Vespasian? He's the Roman general. You know what he says Vespasian did? He filled every valley, lowered every mountain, and he built a highway right to the city where Josephus was. I mean, it's almost like he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. See, folks, this is warfare. This is not the coming of the meek and the gentle and the mild Jesus. Of a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, of Isaiah chapter 42. This is the coming of Jesus as Messiah in judgment and condemnation. That's why it says in verse 10 and following, Behold, your God comes, and his reward is with him. So John, and I'm, I know I'm running out of time here, John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, warning people that the Lord was coming in judgment. What did John say in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7? As the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the crowd came out to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is literally about to come? You know what the imagery of the language there is? A field is on fire, and here's a bunch of snakes in it, and they're fleeing from the fire. That's the imagery that Paul, or excuse me, that, that John evokes in what he said. Look at the rest of his language. When he said, the axe is already at the root, and the winnowing fork is already in his hand. Folks, those are language, that is language not of the meek and the mild Jesus. That is not the language of the incarnation of Jesus. That is the language of judgment and imminent judgment. That's John as the voice. Number two, he is the messenger. Go with me, please, to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. How much time? Oh, okay. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek 
will come suddenly to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller soap. He will set it as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Look at verse 6. Verse 5, excuse me. I will come near to you in judgment. By the way, what did he say? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and the fatherless and against those who turn away an alien. Look what he does. He appeals directly to Exodus 22:12 and Deuteronomy chapter 27, Torah. In other words, God was coming against Israel in judgment for violating the law of Moses. The coming of the Lord, Malachi chapter 3, is the coming of the Lord against Israel for violating the law of Moses. It's not the meek and the mild Jesus. Very, very quickly, who can stand before Him when He comes? You remember Revelation chapter 6? The, the answer of the prayer of the martyrs, How long, O Lord, do you not avenge us on those that are that are coming. The great and terrible day is the Lord answering their prayer. That great and terrible day of the Lord would be the coming of the Lord, and who can stand before Him? That's Malachi chapter 3. Now, if Revelation anticipated the day of the Lord, when no man could stand before Him, citing Malachi, and if Malachi was predicting the day of the Lord, as a judgment against Israel for violation of Torah, that means the law of Moses would have to be in effect for the Lord to come in judgment of Israel for violating that, that law. You know, folks, if a law is dead, you don't judge anybody according to that law, that law do you? I mean, a, a law, if it's dead, it's dead, right? But Revelation 6 is talking about the coming of the Lord of Malachi chapter 3, which is the coming of the Lord against Israel for violating Torah. Torah was still valid in AD 70. That's when the Lord came in the judgment of Israel for violating that Torah, because Matthew chapter 23 contains almost every one of these constituent elements. Jesus accused His generation of doing these things as well. Finally, Malachi chapter 4, 5 and 6. Behold, I send Elijah before the coming of the great, the terrible day of the Lord. Who was Elijah? He was one of Israel's greatest prophets. In fact, he was looked at, looked at as the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. He was expected in Jewish eschatology to come immediately before the resurrection. He was to come and prepare Israel for the day of the Lord, warning them. By the way, the message would be, Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, obey the law of Moses. Hmm, kind of puts that in context, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus spoke to the crowd, and He said, Whom did you go out into the wilderness to see? Speaking of John. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, indeed, I tell you, He was a prophet. But He was much, more great, much greater than the prophet. And verily I say unto you, those, of those born of woman, there has never been anyone greater than John the baptizer. But I say unto you this, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. And he said, if you will receive it. And by the way, in the Greek, it doesn't mean it. he may or may not be. There are four classes of conditional statement in the Greek. And one of them, if it's true, and you know it's true, <laughs> it's not. Who knows if it's true or not? But Jesus said, 
you need to understand who, Jesus, who John is. He is Elijah who is to come. When Jesus went up on the mountain of transfiguration, who was transfigured with him? Or that is to say, who appeared with him? Moses and Elijah. Man, what a vision. Look, the transfiguration is one of my very, very favorite topics. Here is Jesus, here's Moses and Elijah. And Peter, impetuous one that he was, said, Lord, you know, it's absolutely fantastic for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And about the time he got through saying that, Moses and Elijah disappeared. And the voice from heaven said, This, of Jesus, the only one left, is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And in the Greek it's in the emphatic mode, which means Him here. He's the one. He's the one that Moses and Elijah spoke of. He's the one they pointed to. So hear Him. They're coming down off the mountain. And the disciples are talking among themselves about what they have just, just seen. And Jesus says something rather remarkable. See that you tell no one what you have seen. You know what the disciples immediately respond with? Well, whoa, whoa. I'm inserting that. <laughs> Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What did Malachi say? Elijah will come before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. They've just seen Elijah, and Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Lord, what are you talking about? We've got to tell everybody. If you won't let us tell everybody about Elijah, why did the scribes say, Elijah's got to come before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord? And Jesus said, well, you know, the scribes were right. Elijah has to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then watch this. But verily I say unto you, Elijah has already come, and they have done to him whatsoever they willed. And the disciples go, Wow! He's talking about John, the immerser. Would you follow me here? Elijah was supposed to come before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. By the way, the Bible does not know anything whatsoever about another great or greater or greatest day of the Lord. It is the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Elijah was supposed to come and prepare the people for the great and the terrible day of the Lord. John was Elijah. What did John say? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is about to come? The axe is already at the root, and he will chop down every tree that does not bring forth fruit. His winnowing fork is already in his hand. He will gather the wheat into the barns, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Three images, actually four, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. When would the kingdom come? In Jewish eschatology, at the day of the Lord, at the day of judgment, at the day of the resurrection. Four images because of eminence because John said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Folks, these are the signs of the end. 
And just these signs that we have examined all appeared in the first century, and every one of them has emphatic declarations of the nearness of the end. That's because the signs were to indicate the end had drawn near. When today we hear men like John Hagee, Hal Lindsey, Grant Jeffrey, or, you know, Jonathan Kahn say, we're seeing the signs, we're seeing the signs, the end is near. I'm sorry, they are dead wrong. And I say that as kindly as I know how. You have to be able to show that there's another greater day of the Lord from that which those signs pointed to. And there's not anything beyond that generation that the Bible ever points to. It was the day of the Lord. Thank you. Great, great. I know uh, Heidi has a question, but before we get to her, uh, anybody else? Jonathan and then Trisha. Hey, Mr. Don. Um, this is a mo uh, current event uh, question. What do you make of the mass persecution of Christians in uh, the Middle East by ISIS and um, extremist Muslims? What do I make of it? Well, obviously, it's an incredible travesty and, and just, it, it's just an unbelievable tragedy. It is a tragedy that the rest of the world sits by and allows it to happen, number one. It is a tragedy, and, and I don't want to get all that political, but it's a tragedy when America sits by and allows it to happen. When it's been revealed that at least 50 political advisors who have warned about the strength of ISIS, and it has just recently been revealed that their reports emphasizing the strength of ISIS have actually been altered by administrative people uh, to downplay the strength and thus allowing ISIS to continue. I don't believe it has anything to do with the time of the end, obviously. I don't think the rise of Islam is any, anywhere predicted in the Bible, as opposed, for instance, to, to Jason Wallace, who as a historicist believes that uh, the rise of Islamism is part of the end time drama, part of the last days foretold in the, in the book of Revelation. At least that's part of a traditional uh, historicist view of which he, he says he espouses. So again, it's an absolutely horrid and atrocious thing. Uh, it, it staggers I tell you what really bothers me about this is the dispensational world when it looks to Israel and how Israel is persecuting Palestinian Christians. Jerry Falwell was asked on one occasion, how do you feel about the persecution of those Palestinian Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, they love Him, and yet the Jews are confiscating their goods, they're persecuting them, running them out of their houses, and Jerry, Jerry Falwell said, well, it's just too bad because that land belongs to Israel. They can do with it whatever they want to. So he sided with Christ denying, Christ hating Jews against those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the dispensational view to a great extent. And that's, how horrible is this, folks? How could anyone take the side of God, uh, you know, of Christ hating people against Christians? I, I just fail to see how anyone could take that position. Okay. Uh, this is Trish. Okay, so if the end times have happened, what time are, 
is 71 AD and on. What times are we in? Okay, what now? Where are we now? Well, the, uh, it's a great question, very perfectly natural. First of all, we have to understand that when we talk about eschatology, I believe we are talking about covenant eschatology, not historical. Let me explain. I believe the Bible is concerned with the end of the old, co old covenant age of Israel, with the heaven and earth of Israel. It is not concerned with the end of history, i.e., historical eschatology. So, what, what does that mean? Well, if a covenant comes to an end, do I have to have the end of time to go along with it? No. It's a change of covenant. Prior to Sinai, those who were in a relationship with God were in a covenant with Him. But when Sinai came, that, that quote, old covenant that had existed at that time passed away, but literal physical heaven and earth didn't pass. But the people went from one covenantal standing, one covenantal relationship, into another covenantal relationship. Biologically, physiologically, they were not changed whatsoever. The trees weren't different, the rocks weren't different, but their standing before God was. If we can understand eschatology in that context, which I think is the proper context, then with the, with the total dissolution of the Old Covenant, what happened? The New Covenant people, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, by faith realized what had happened. I won't take the time to go into Isaiah chapter 26 in depth, but in Isaiah chapter 26 it predicted the coming of the Lord out of heaven to trade on the mountains, the earth would be destroyed under His feet, and it would be the time of the resurrection. The righteous would, quote, see the event and know that it was the Lord at work. The wicked would see the same identical, quote, events, unquote, and not even know what was going on. Now, wait a minute. If the day of the Lord is an earth-burning, time-ending event, I don't care how strong of an atheist you are, you're going to have a clue, right? I mean, if the graves are just popping open and gazillions of people are popping up out of the ground, again, I don't care if you were Madeline Murray O'Hare in her prime of denying the Bible or whatever, I don't care if you're hawking. Guess what? You're probably going, oops! But Isaiah describes that resurrection event as something that the righteous would see what was going on and say, oh, this is the day of the Lord. The wicked would see the same identical events and go, what are you talking about? Just, I won't see nothing. I don't see the Lord. It's an amazing passage, one that, that does not receive enough attention. But it's interesting that, uh, that Martin Luther himself uh, looked and commented on the text and saw the significance of, well, I, I, he, he saw some of the significance of it. He didn't make the full application. I think we got one back, right back here first. This is Casey. You had made a comment yesterday that stated that we were in warfare. And I just wanted to ask you in light, um, just your opinion, in light of Satan being bound and crushed under the Lord's heel, what, what, what warfare are we involved in at this time? Okay, I think we have to see that the enemy of God was a very, very specific enemy of God in the first century. He is described, obviously, as Satan in the book of Revelation. Well, Satan in, in the book of Revelation is, is specifically identified, I believe, as Israel, as the adversary. 
it is Israel in that context that was the Satan, the adversary, that was completely destroyed and crushed at the coming of the Lord in A.D. 70. Does that mean, therefore, the obvious question, does that mean that there's no sin, that there is no, again, there's any warfare? Well, I would, I would take you back to Romans chapter 13, 11, a passage that I brought up yesterday. Here is Paul anticipating the day of the Lord. And he said they were supposed to walk as if the day had arrived. And he said, put off the works of darkness and walk as if you are in the day. Well, if they are supposed to put off those unrighteous works of fornication, adultery, extortion, etc., etc., guess what? Guess what Revelation does? After the time of the end, after Satan is thrown into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, what is the picture that we have there after the end? Well, let's see. The nations are still outside. Inside you have a river of life and you have a tree of life whose leaves are for what? Healing. The nations get to come in. What do they come in for? Healing. Well, if they need healing, there's still something bad outside. And that, that goes back to what I was trying to say. There was a very specific Satan, a very specific adversary that was destroyed in A.D. 70. It is in that city, the new creation that came at that time, in which there is no death, because we are in the new covenant that gives us life, pardon me, gives us righteousness. Outside the city in Revelation 21, 25, 27, are dogs and liars and those who work abomination. Well, that's not very good stuff. So there's an ongoing conflict between right and wrong, but it's not that specific context. Uh, yes. Uh, I, they, Adam, I'll get to you in a second. Up. I'll come up to you with the microphone. This is Cassidy. Hi. I'm curious how um, this eschatology has, has affected your personal walk with God. Oh, wow and how you think it would change um, the body as a whole, if people. <laughs> wow. How has my view of eschatology changed my walk with God? I used to live in fear, constant fear. I was sharing with some yesterday that when I was a young man, a, a teenager, uh, about all I'll say about it, I wasn't living for the Lord very scrupulously. I had a horrible guilty conscience. I was living in fear that the Lord was going to come just about any day. Our house was situated on a long sweeping curve. I had red curtains in my bedroom. One night as I lay in bed with my conscience just killing me for the way that I was living, a car came from the west, came around the curve, his headlights hit my red curtains and I thought it was the day of the Lord. I was absolutely, teetotally terrified. The adrenaline rush through my body was, I'm lost. That was on a Saturday night. The next morning, I walked down the aisle at church. Because you see, I was raised in an environment that said, you can't really know if you're saved or not. One sin will condemn you. And I know preachers today in my fellowship that actually teach that. They have no concept of God's grace and God's mercy. My view of eschatology has radically, radically changed my views and my walk with God in this respect. When I was a young man growing up in the churches of Christ, 
I would never have even contemplated for a moment coming in front of a bunch of you heathen, non-Church of Christ people and talking to you, except to tell you you're lost. That was the view that I was raised in. It's not my view anymore, because God's grace has transformed me. It brought me before His throne. It crushed my pride. It crushed my heart. And it let me know that I am reliant 100% on Him and His work. And I praise Him for that. <clears throat> and how can it cha change the world? Think of all the people that are in fear of September 27th, of September 29th. I, I preached a sermon some years ago on the implications of covenant eschatology for ecology, for society, for foreign policy, and for personal righteousness. And I want to tell you, folks, this doctrine has the potential to change our world for the better. Okay. This is Heidi. Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts, and you've kind of touched on it on the previous two um, questions. But when in Luke, um, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is in the synagogue and he unrolls the scrolls and he starts quoting from Isaiah, he doesn't finish that passage. He doesn't go on to say about the vengeance and how the comfort and he'll comfort the, morn, the morning. So I've heard that it's part, he's come partially but not in full because right. that passage was not finished. So how do you reconcile that with the full preterist preter view? Great question. I hear it very often as well that, well, okay, in Luke chapter 4, when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach glad tidings of good things to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops right there and didn't finish it, which says, in the day of vengeance of our God. Well, that kind of argument, which says, well, he left off that part about the day of vengeance because he didn't intend to be talking about the day of vengeance. I believe that's a really common error of the failure to understand the Jewish hermeneutic of the day, I, as I touched on yesterday. You see, folks, to reiterate, when a Jewish teacher stood up in the synagogue, when a rabbi stood up, if he quoted any part of a given text to the listener, he was bringing that whole context, the entire discussion, to the mind of the, of the listeners and to the readers even. So while our Western mindset might go, oh, well, he left off the statement of vengeance, therefore he didn't mean to talk about it. Well, let's see if that's true or not. Luke chapter 21, verse 22, as he's predicting the judgment on Jerusalem, Jesus himself, who came to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord, what did he say? Pointing in a passage, by the way, that the dispensationalists who very often make this very argument most vehemently, they agree that Luke 21, 20 to 24, Jesus was predicting the events of A.D. 70, okay? Jesus said, Luke 21, verse 22, these be the days of vengeance, in which all things that are written must be fulfilled. Well, Here's Jesus talking about vengeance, the day of vengeance. 
not just the day of vengeance, the day of vengeance in which all things that are written would be fulfilled. So was Jesus out of, out of hand? Was He out of turn? But to be talking about vengeance in Luke 21, when He ostensibly left it out in Luke chapter 4? No, we just have to understand. We have to stop thinking in such Greek limited, limited ways and understand His audience understood. And by the way, why did His audience in Luke chapter 4 get so riled up about Him when He quoted Luke 4? Well, there were two reasons. Because He mentions the calling of the Gentiles, which they sure didn't like. But secondly, He had implicitly in their mind said, I've come to preach the acceptable day of the Lord. And they knew that the acceptable day of the Lord would come in, really, at the day of vengeance. And they didn't want to hear it. They just simply did not want to hear the message of the vengeance. They wanted the good news. They didn't want to want the bad news. So we have to understand the Jewish hermeneutic. Thank you, Heidi. And this is Reed. In my human weakness, I expected you to discuss various things that I haven't heard yet. Mark of the Beast, Nero, 666, the Great Tribulation, the False Prophet, and the Antichrist. Right. Is that coming, or nope. does that figure in? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, believe me, I understand the, what, what you're saying. In my book, Who Is This Babylon?, I try to discuss an awful lot of that. Uh, I've, I've tried to focus on the, on the framework of the last days. So let me express it like this. The Great Tribulation, the Mark of the Beast, the Man of Sin, all of those elements that you've just mentioned belong to the last days. If the last days were in the first century, then all of those constituent elements belong within that framework of the first century. And by the way, that agrees perfectly, because in the book of Revelation, what do we find? We have the Great Tribulation. So to give just a little primer here. In Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14, John saw the 144,000. And in Revelation chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, the angel asked John, Who are these? And John said, I don't have any idea. And the angel said, These are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. And these are those who come out of the great tribulation. Well, you can't come out of something unless you're in it, right? So the 144,000 would experience the Great Tribulation. In Revelation chapter 14, which is a secondary vision of the 144,000, they're now standing on Mount Zion. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a celebration of resurrection, by the way. Once again, the angel says, Who are these? And John says, I don't know. You tell me. And the angel says, to cut it short here, these are the first fruit of those redeemed to God from men. Folks, what does first mean? It doesn't mean 40 generations later, does it? We're living 44, 45, 50 generations from the first century. But the 144,000 were the first fruit, and they were of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the first fruits, Jewish Christians. What did James, writing to the 12 tribes, say in James 1.18? Of his own will begat he us 
by the Word of God that we should be a kind of first fruits unto Him. First, first generation Christians. And here is John being told in Revelation that the 144,000, the first generation of Christians, would experience the Great Tribulation. Well, that has to mean that the abomination of desolation. It has to mean that the man of sin. It has to mean that the mark of the beast was all in the first generation. Because you don't have the Great Tribulation without the man of sin and the abomination of desolation and the mark of the beast. They all go together as a package. Uh, I cover all this in the little book over there, Blast from the Past, The Truth About Armageddon. Blast from the Past. Get it. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. We're going to wrap this up quickly. Adam, I'll get to your last question. Uh, online, we had Stephanie asking about the 144,000. There's quite a conversation going here, but it says, sorry for these, uh, Dr. Don, but what about the thousand years? The two witnesses, the heaven and new earth. Sean, please ask him. Well, we covered the millennium a little bit last night. I would, I would suggest that everyone go back and watch that and listen to it very carefully. I believe that the millennium began with the, with the ministry of Jesus and the binding of Satan there, culminating in the second coming and the vindication of the martyrs 40 years later, approximately uh, 40 years later. And then we have the two witnesses. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who the two witnesses are. I've gone back and forth between the Old Covenant and New. I've gone back and forth. Maybe it's Peter and John or Peter and Paul, uh, which is not really a too bad of an idea, by the way, although I'm unsettled on it. Others have said, well, it's Moses and Elijah. I honestly do not know. Here's what I do know. Their ministry was a last day's ministry. They had the power to call down fire from heaven, to cause it to rain or not to rain in the last days, their bodies would lie in the street of the city spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Do you realize, folks, the only city in all of the Bible that is spiritually designated as Sodom was Old Covenant Jerusalem? You realize that? Isaiah 1, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, Old Covenant Jerusalem was spiritually designated as Sodom. And oh, by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which was a song about Israel's last days, her last end, it says that in her last end she would become the vine of Sodom. Deuteronomy 32, 29 to 32. Well, here's John living in the last days. And he's talking about this city, quote, where the Lord was slain. Anybody have a problem with where Jesus was slain? That's pretty easy to figure out, isn't it? Well, that city is also called spiritually, spiritually designated as Egypt. Do you know how Paul designated Old Covenant Jerusalem? Hagar. Who was Hagar? Genesis 25, verse 1, she was an Egyptian. Why did Paul call Hagar an Egyptian? Why did he call Jerusalem of his day Hagar the Egyptian? Because, as he said, they are in bondage. See, Hagar represented bondage in Egypt to the Jewish mind, to the Jewish Christian mind. So that's the context of the two witnesses. We can't take 
the, the imagery of the two witnesses and extrapolate it beyond that time frame and that context and say, well, the two witnesses haven't come. Well, the judgment of that city, which was designated as Sodom and Egypt, the city where the Lord was slain, was judged very, very soon. So I have to find some designation of the two witnesses within the context and time frame of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. I've forgotten what the last one was. Uh, they can search it. They can search it. That's All good. Right. And the final question, Adam Geim. I was wanting to find out if this is uh, religious or not, but I've heard a lot about this one world government, and is that something that different religions are fighting against or about, or there's just a lot of talk about it. Right. Uh, the concept and the idea of the one world government is, in my personal opinion, another one of those inventions of the dispensational world. They, they conjure up an awful lot of things. They grasp at straws here and there. Now, make no mistake, I think there's an awful lot of devious stuff going on behind the scenes. There are a lot of powerful people at work whose one motive is control and money. And that's all they want. They don't care about you and me, you know, the peons of this world. And if they have to trample over us to get that, then they will certainly do that. Do I believe that's biblically prophesied? No, I don't believe that. What, what has happened in the references to the world and this so-called uh, one world government, which is never used, by the way, in the Bible, is the, the modern dispensational world has taken language that the ancient Hebrews would never, ever, ever conceive in the way that it's being used today. And they've said, well, you know, uh, this gospel will be preached in all the world. So it wasn't preached in Russia. It wasn't preached in South America, therefore it has to be done. That's co to completely and totally misunderstand and abuse the language as it was used in the first century. Likewise, when it says all the nations of the world would worship him, that is the beast, well, then that means there's got to be a one world government, government with a literal man of sin ruling over every single nation on the earth. Once again, it overlooks the nature of Hebraic thought and the he nature of Hebraic language. And that's the great tragedy. As I challenged us all last night, the challenge for us as modern, modern Bible students is to stop thinking in Grecian ways. And folks, it's tough. I mean, I struggle with this every day. I have to pick up the commentators and, you know, the, the Hebraic thinking from, from the books and say, Okay, how did the ancients think about it? How did a Hebrew really honestly think about this? And so often it just blows my mind so it's because it's so contrary to the way that I was raised believing. Modern commentator, modern scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, and if you haven't read of any of N.T. Wright's writings, or for that matter, R.T. France, or a host of others, Mark Nanos, some of, these, some of these scholars are doing a fantastic job. Do, do I agree with all their theology? Absolutely not. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying insofar as helping us to get in touch with the Hebraic thinking, the Hebraic thought of the ancient world, it, it's great, great stuff. There's a book entitled Our Father Abraham by Ralph Wilson that is a wonderful resource. And it points out some things that when you read it, you're just going... Oh my goodness, that's fantastic! But you would never get it from a Grecian worldview. There's another, there's a two-volume set, Mark Bailey, Through Peasant's Eyes, Poet and Prophet. It, it's a commentary on the parables of Jesus. 
Now, Mr. Bailey is an expert in the Arabic and the ancient customs of the first century. If you want to have your mind blown, and if you want to look at the parable of the prodigal son in a way you've never, ever, ever, ever seen it before, get Bailey's book on Through Peasant's Eyes. I will nearly guarantee you it will make you cry to read it and to know of the grace of God manifested in that story. Wow, it's beautiful. I'll leave it at that. Round of applause. We've been marvelously blessed here at campus uh, by the spirit, by the information, by the knowledge, the wisdom, the love of uh, our guest and his wife, Don uh, Preston. And listen, uh, tonight, 6.30, local pastor, uh, Orthodox Presbyterian, Jason Wallace, he's going to come in. We're going to remove the stage, put some comfy chairs, and they're going to get to debate. That's the word that Jason uses. This man's a, he's a good talker, good discussioner. Um, uh, I'm really grateful for uh, one thing specifically after this after this morning, and that is the solution that getting over this will bring to the Christian world, uh, to the rest of the world. That if we can get beyond this, you said four things, you said government, and uh, we can be of a much greater source than running around fanatically looking for Jesus to come and destroy us and instead be used in the name of Christ to heal the world and do a better job. And I really took that to heart, learned so many things. Uh, Join us. We're going to be live again tonight, 6.30 Mountain Time, and you're welcome to come here to campus to observe. God bless y'all. Thank you. I would like to to keep this up there because I'll keep it. Yeah, because... I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys start.